Welcome to the MLB Extras Minnesota Twins podcast. I'm Anthony Kashevitz, joined by Rhett Bollinger. And Rhett, you were at Joe Maurer's retirement press conference uh, this past week, and obviously a, a very emotional experience. Uh, I'm sure even for the writers, it was a bit emotional watching Joe up there. Um, you know, we all, any of us who had the pleasure of interacting with Joe over the years, such a pleasure. And you got to interact with him on a daily basis and watch him on a daily basis. What was it like for you covering that? It really was an awesome event. You know, Joe is just pure class. I mean, he talked about a guy that really did it the right way throughout his entire career for 15 years, being the hometown kid, uh, never did anything wrong, was just, a, you know, the nicest guy, a great representative of the of the state and just of baseball in general, a great ambassador uh, for the game. Obviously not a big vocal guy and not really, you know, the big rah-rah leader guy maybe some fans wanted to see, but a consistent producer as a player, but as a person, uh, just a great human being. So it was fun to be there and, and see him get emotional talking about, you know, his family and what they meant to him and, uh, you know, all of his teammates. I mean, he spent the first 10, 15 minutes of the press conference just going one by one, thanking everybody there and thanking everybody in his life uh, who kind of got, got him to that point from family to his high school coaches to the minor league coaches to the front office members to his teammates to even thank the media. So, I mean, it really was pretty incredible to hear him go through the list there. And, and the amazing thing, a lot of those people were there. You know, it's amazing that this organization uh, remains kind of like a family in some ways, even though, you know, Terry Ryan and Bill Smith had been, you know, dismissed as GMs. They were both there. Uh, even, you know, Ron Gardenhire and Paul Mulder have both been dismissed as managers. They were both there. Um, it's pretty funny to kind of see the twins all like that all together still. Um, just showing their support for Mauer. And, you know, Justin Morneau and Corey Kosky and, and – and uh, Glenn Perkins were there. So it was just really cool to see a lot of Twins people there in one place. And I think it meant a lot for Joe to have them all there to kind of have a little perfect send-off. Obviously, he had a great last day of the season. But I think this press conference, too, really went perfect for him. Yeah, as you said, uh, it got a little misty-eyed in there, uh, did Joe Maurer. So let's hear from him. Here's what he had to say at this press conference. Seeing everyone in here, um, in this room today, it means so much to have you all here. And to be honest, I probably wouldn't even be here sitting up here if you weren't here <clears throat> for the support and guidance that has been given to me by so many of you along the way. There are so many people here <clears throat> who I'd like to thank for the role that they have played throughout my life and my career. I think the best place to start today is with my family, mom and dad. Thank you so much for always believing in me. <clears throat> For sitting at my countless games and tournaments and for being the pillar of support back then and always. You both made it a priority to be there for me throughout my whole career and that means the world to me. <clears throat> You've helped keep me grounded and have never let me forget my roots. Thanks to my brothers Jake and Bill. <laughs> Thanks for always letting your little brother tag along. I know it's not easy sometimes, but uh, I've always appreciated that. You guys have been th there through it all. Jake, I'll never forget our years in the minor leagues together, some of my favorite times. Bill, I was proud to catch you in that spring training game <clears throat> where you got to face your favorite player, David Ortiz. Thank you, Guardy, for letting that happen, too. Um, I'm also proud to say that we got him out. It's pretty amazing that three brothers from Minnesota at one point, all donned a Twins uniform, and I'll always be thankful we were able to share that together. And Maddie, 
<clears throat> I'm not sure I have the right words to express my gratitude, my admiration, or my love for you. You have been my biggest supporter, my biggest fan, and my rock. You made everything happen at home so that I could go out there and, and play a game that I love. When I look at our girls, I see the wonderful young ladies they are turning into, and I'm constantly reminded of the amazing job that you are doing as their mother. I see so much of you in those two, and it makes me so proud and so happy. I know it wasn't easy on you three when I would leave, but you sure made it look like it was. Thank you for everything you do for us, and I want you to know how excited I am to begin this new chapter with you and our family. Ultimately, Rhett, I mean, the coolest thing, it's one thing to play your entire career with one team, but to play that entire career for your hometown team and the family ties that come with that, uh, you know, having family in the crowd so frequently. And um, it, it was just a very special career in that regard. Absolutely. I mean, how rare is that to be, especially for Minnesota? It's one thing if you're a hometown kid from Los Angeles or a bigger city where it's a little bit more likely, but even that's still really rare. But to be a Minnesota kid and to play for your hometown twins and be the number one overall pick too, you know, for the twins – uh, kind of like LeBron almost, you know, to be a, he obviously didn't play his whole career in Cleveland, but being the number one pick, you know, the way it worked out, the Cavs being the, just like this, the twins happened to have the number one pick that year. Sure enough, Joe's, you know, number one prospect, but, you know, Mark Pryor, Mark Desher, there were some good players in that draft and they kind of took some heat taking Joe at the time. People thought they were being cheap, taking the high school catcher, hometown kid. Uh, but clearly they, you know, scattered him properly and Joe lived up the expectations. He was obviously an incredible player from day one. Uh, we know about the concussion and what it kind of did to the end of his career, but as a player, you know, to be a six-time All-Star, to be, you know, win an MVP, only catcher to win three batting titles, uh, just an impressive resume as a player. And as I said, the hometown kid, uh, someone I think a lot of the kids could really look up to. Like I said earlier, just exuded class. Like you said, he wasn't, uh, you know, a guy that was big time in the media. He wasn't someone that liked to talk too much about himself. Um, but just the way he carried himself and went about his business, I think this you could, you could only respect him for that. And I think... Uh, players around the league, I think you could see a lot of you know uh, them on social media, just you know, kind of expressing their admiration for Ma Ma uh, for Mauer. I talked to a couple of players recently, and you know Kyle Gibson and Jake Odorizzi, and they were just saying how much they looked up to him as a player, and how they've never met anybody uh, in the game really that's more respected than him, just because of what he accomplished, but also the way he did it. Uh, kind of just with so much class, and just being a kind of that quiet uh, guy, but just producing all the time and and putting in that hard work without looking for recognition. I think he cared more about his teammates than anything else. You know, after games in recent years, he would uh, kind of do a game ball presentation. Um, but a lot of guys that would win it weren't the guys that had the three-run home run or pitched seven-shot innings. It was a guy that maybe made a big defensive play to get out of a jam or a guy that went first to third on a close play and then scored in a sacrifice play or fly. Little things like that that maybe don't show up in the box score. Um, I think he really loved and kind of relished uh, to be able to give his teammates that kind of um, credit in, in the locker room. And so he really became a leader, especially in those last few years. I think fans always kind of, I was always the one thing fans always thought about him. He wasn't that real big leader, but I think he really was, especially down the, the last few years here as he knew kind of was getting closer to the end. And so, yeah, the press conference yesterday was great. And he really was a role model for a lot of Minnesotans and people around baseball. Yeah, and uh, apparently Mother Nature took notice because the morning after his press conference, uh, it was seven degrees in Minneapolis at 7 a.m., so uh, that's incredible. I didn't even I see that. That's uh, things that make you go, hmm, I think there's just things that make you go burr. It might be seven <laughs> degrees on November 13th in Minneapolis, but we'll have that, I guess. Um, so let's dig into the Hall of Fame case, uh, Rhett, because you mentioned there are some accolades that, that really make you 
that definitely make you go, hmm. Uh, you mentioned the three batting titles. That's the most by any catcher. Um, he, he led the American League in uh, batting average in 2006, 2008, 2009. His 365 mark in the last of those three seasons, that was the highest single season mark by any catcher in modern history with at least 500 plate appearances. Uh, closed his career with a 388 on-base percentage. That ranked fifth among active players with at least 3,000 plate appearances. Um, so very good there. Um, a total of 30 players have recorded at least six qualified seasons with a 400 on-base percentage or higher since the major leagues integrated, and uh, that was in 1947. Mauer is the only one of those 30 players to log even one of those seasons as a primary catcher and spent the majority of his time behind the plate in all six of those seasons. So, so much of his Hall of Fame case basically revolves around the position. And as we know, he had to come off of that position uh, because of concussions. And, you know, the, the numbers kind of suffered from that point forward. And, you know, that's not to take any away from Joe Maurer as a career. It's just in terms of a Hall of Fame context, that's an important thing to note. Um, you know, the, the formula changes a bit when he moves to first base uh, full time in, in 2014, I believe it was. So where are you at? Rhett, on the uh, the Hall of Fame spectrum as it pertains to Joe Maurer. What do you think of his case? It really is a great question and a very interesting case because I do think he was on an absolute Hall of Fame track uh, when he was a catcher, as you talked about, all those accolades, first catcher to ever win three batting titles, and even his total, you know, if you go with wins above replacement, uh, war, he's second all-time in the Twins, only behind Rod Carew, and ahead of a lot of people that people wouldn't expect, like Kirby Puckett, um, and even Killebrew, although Killebrew, if you add up his years in Washington, truthfully, he's ahead of Maurer. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think he's eighth all-time in war among catchers, and all the seven ahead of him are in the Hall of Fame. And I saw a stat yesterday that uh, 23 players have, have ever played their entire career with, uh, with one team for at least 15 years and won an MVP, and all of them are in the Hall of Fame but Maurer. So there's a lot of those kind of things you can kind of find ways to kind of pick those stats and, and, and make a really good case for him. I mean, I think the hard thing is, like you said, the concussion changed things. He was never quite the same offensive performer after the concussion and the fact that he wasn't a catcher anymore. But 2017 had a nice bounce-back year, and I really thought that he should have won the gold glove in 2017 defensively at first base. So it wasn't like he was a, you know, a bad defensive player at first. He turned into be a very good defensive player there. Um, but yeah, if you add up all the numbers over the 15 years with the injuries and stuff, it's a tough case. I, I lean toward yes, just because of what he did as a catcher. And it's, it's always said the longevity thing's always a, a tough thing. We've seen that in Minnesota with, with Tony Oliva. I think most people are convinced that, uh, Tony Oliva is going to be a hall of famer, uh, during his playing career, but the knee injuries forced him to retire for 12 years. I still think Tony could get in in the, one of the veteran committees. So I'm curious to see how, you know, what the voters do with Maurer or, or if I'll have to rely more on a committee. I do think he'll get in eventually just because, like I said, just all the accolades as a catcher was really pretty unprecedented as a hitter. I mean, the fact that it wasn't like, you know, obviously, you know, there's some good offensive catchers in history like Mike Piazza. But, you know, Piazza wasn't really seen as a great defensive catcher, whereas Maurer, you know, he won three gold gloves back there, too. So he was kind of known as a do-it-all, you know, guy that could obviously be an incredible hitter and get on base better than just about anybody in the league. Um, and then on top of it, you know, be a great defensive catcher. So I think that weighs heavily to me in terms of what he was able to do at his peak. So I, I think his peak years and just the longevity of his career, the 15 years, I, I would lean yes. Um, but I understand people that would say no just because the last few years weren't quite the same. But it's hard to really, at least in my mind, fully punish him uh, for a concussion that was out of his control. So I think if he didn't suffer that concussion in 2013 – uh, this conversation would be easy, and we'd know for a fact that he was a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I think it probably would have been a slam dunk case. Um, we had a couple more stats on MLB.com. So a group of players with 5,000 or more plate appearances and 
in their career and 45% of their career games played behind home plate. Uh, since 1900, Joe Maurer's career, 124 OPS plus, that ranks 10th in that group. Um, eight of the nine players above him are in the Hall of Fame. The only exception is Gene Tennis, uh, 1972 World Series MVP. Um, so I don't know if he'll have a tennis-like uh, result or result like the, the other eight guys, but uh, Jay Jaffe's uh, Jaws system, which kind of rates Hall of Famers relative to their uh, career wins above replacement marks. Uh, he has Joe Maurer's seventh all-time um, for what that's worth among catchers. So, yeah, it'll be an interesting one to debate in five years, and I'm guessing for several years thereafter, perhaps, because that's how uh, a lot of these Hall of Fame cases go. Uh, but, Rhett, getting back to the present day and the Minnesota Twins, where are things at as far as rounding out um, Rocco Baldelli's coaching staff? It's a good question. I talked a little bit to Rocco and talked to Derek Falvey a little bit. They're getting closer. They really are. I think – the next hiring might be their pitching coach. They, they almost even made a hire uh, last week. I know, I know that Charles Nagy is a name that they've talked to a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I think they're getting closer here. They want to kind of get this finalized because um, they really want to be able to focus more on, you know, free agency and filling out the roster more so than coaching staff. Um, but obviously they have the big staff and, they you know, they have a lot of people, you know, all their scouts and analytical people working on the kind of free agency stuff. But I do think it's something that's, you know, on the kind of on the front burner here for, for Thad and for Derek and for Rocco. Um, you got to figure out from what I'm hearing and people that have been hearing or interviewing, it's going to be a young staff. I hear it's going to be a kind of a young, energetic staff. It's kind of the only hints they'd give me was that it's, it's going to be young and energetic. So I think there's going to be too many guys in the staff. They're going to be too experienced, but, um, I hear it's going to be kind of a, a young staff here. That's going to be able to kind of really use these analytics and, and really be able to relate to the players. I think that was a big thing, uh, with this new kind of regime change, uh, in terms of the managers and coaches was I really wanted to have, some coaches that could relate to the younger players and really be able to kind of, you know, every team has all the you know analytics these days, but I think the big thing now is, is being able to use that data um, and be able to get it to the players effectively. Um, and I think in some ways they felt like they weren't able to do that, especially on the pitching end last year, um, even bullpen guys, you know, nowadays sequencing and all that stuff is so important and they couldn't quite get through. And I think that's going to be the big key here is going to be finding you know, people that can really kind of decode that information and, and make the players understand how to use that correctly and be, become better players. So I do think they're getting closer. I, I would expect in the next, gosh, the next week or two to be, probably have all of the coaching staff spots here filled out because, they, uh, you know, Derek was saying they're getting really close. And now that uh, Joe Maurer's retirement is officially official, what does the future hold at first base? It's another really good question. And one that Derek was saying, Derek Falvey was saying that, there's not much out there in terms of free agency, in terms of first baseman. You know, Steve Pierce, you know, World Series MVP, he's out there. He's a former twin for one spring training back, I believe, in 2012. And uh, Matt Adams, he left-handed hitting first baseman, had a little bit of a bounce-back year, but really not much out there on the, on the free agent market. So there's a chance they could get creative and maybe go after a third baseman. They could go after a guy like Mike Moustakas or even Josh Donaldson um, and move Miguel Sano to first and maybe even kind of have them kind of rotate between first and third with him a little bit. Um, and same thing with infield, you know, in the middle infield right now with, you know, Brian Dozier gone and Escobar having resigned with the D-backs, uh, they were saying they could get creative and decide to trade or, or sign for a shortstop instead and have Jorge Polanco move to second base. So basically the way they're looking at it is that they have two spots open in their infield, but it doesn't necessarily mean they have a shortstop or a, you know, a first base open or, or third base. It's just kind of going to be create, you know, they're going to get creative here. Um, whether it's a guy like Marvin Gonzalez who can play several positions, but I think they're going to try to get creative and kind of find ways to fill the holes uh, the best way they can based on kind of who's available. But I do think uh, it'll be interesting at first base. They have Tyler Austin coming back. 
um, who can play some first base and had some uh, showed some power after getting traded from the Yankees. Uh, Kenny's Vargas is no longer part of that mix. Uh, Kenny's Vargas is going to play in Japan next year. Um, so, yeah, I'd expect them definitely to get a corner infielder and a middle infielder. It's just hard to know if it's going to be a third baseman, first baseman, shortstop, or second baseman. It's just going to be uh, two infielders at this point. All right. Good stuff, as always, from Rhett. And, Rhett, we got through this whole podcast without getting teary-eyed, so that's pretty good. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, I tried not to. <laughs> I tried my best. <laughs> All right. Thanks for doing this, man. Awesome. Thanks for having me on again.